Welcome, all you happy warriors, and what a privilege it is for me to have the opportunity every week to share ideas together with you on this terrific podcast format. Now, I do miss not having the callers that were such a a distinguishing characteristic of my terrestrial radio shows on KSFO in San Francisco and uh, KVI in uh, Seattle and uh, in some other places. But um, I, I do believe that the technology already exists for callers to become a part of the podcast. I would like to get a little up on that and incorporate it perhaps in part of the show. Uh, speak with callers. I, uh, I I would like to try that. So I'll be uh, exploring the uh, technology on that. If any of you have insights or knowledge on, on how that happens, uh, I am looking for help in that area. So uh, contact me through the website at rabbidaniellappin.com and we'll be able to get in touch and we'll be able to explore that. But uh, for now... Let us move ahead, and uh, let me say that I am uh, preparing this show just before the biblical festival of Shavuot, or Pentecost, uh, in the year 2018. And so uh, Pentecost falls on uh, Saturday night, the 19th of May, 2018, and um, I am preparing the show. Now, being as uh, it's a week in which much has happened, uh, there was the dedication of the embassy in Jerusalem. There was, tragically, another school shooting, this time in Texas. So there's been a lot going on in this week. Also, the riots in Gaza uh, that resulted in 50 members of the Hamas a terrorist group being shot as they try to cross the border into Israel. Um, so why am I not speaking about all of these things? Because in general, my principle, my guiding strategy in the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show um, is to make the material I discuss with you as generally applicable as possible. And so I try and avoid very specific current events that in a week or a month or a year would be utterly and completely irrelevant and obsolete. But what I try and do is uh, work with you on the guiding principles, on the timeless truths and uh, permanent realities that allow you to go ahead and analyze these things for yourself. These timeless tools that I provide are designed to enable everybody, no matter what your background, to apply these, uh, these principles of ancient Jewish wisdom in order to resolve, explain, understand, unpack, decrypt, any current event that is going on. 
And in doing so, uh, I try as much as possible to use the, the biblical principles that themselves are distinguished by a universality independent of time and space. In other words, uh, I think that these biblical principles, when properly decoded, are as applicable today as they were 500 years ago, and yes, as they will be 500 years hence. Uh, they are also as applicable in modern America as they were in ancient Israel, uh, as applicable in modern Malta or Gibraltar as they were in ancient Gaza when um, Samson trod those uh, problematic uh, areas. Okay, so we'll take a look at, at all of that, and uh, for a start, let's just look at Gaza, shall we? And uh, the reason I'm, I'm using and talking of these biblical principles is because uh, this Saturday night, um, the, the, um, the Jewish holiday, the biblical festival of Pentecost, or Shavuot occurs, and it is a, a holiday that revolves chiefly around the fact that if you do a little bit of Exodus arithmetic through chapter 19 of Exodus, just before the Ten Commandments uh, are uttered by God in chapter 20, uh, you'll see that the uh, tradition that the Torah was given to Moses on the sixth day of the Hebrew month of Sivan, uh, which is in this coming uh, uh, this coming Sunday, uh, May twentieth, twenty eighteen. But as I say, it's it's always somewhere around about uh, somewhere in May. But because it's contingent on the Hebrew date. Uh, the Hebrew date floats backwards and forwards against the solar calendar by a few weeks every year. And so in this, in this particular year that I'm preparing this show, it would be May 20th, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't much matter. The point is that I am using these biblical principles for your enjoyment and your benefit uh, to give you the tools to analyze these things all by yourself. And one of the things I wanted to spend a moment on, because uh, it has been in the news lately, so it's been on my mind, but the truth is that the analysis is useful uh, for a variety of reasons. What am I talking about? Gaza is a hellish place. Uh, yes, this last week, given the time I'm recording this, but the truth is that it could be true almost any time in the past few years, ever since Israel uh, gave back the Gaza, this was land they legitimately captured in the Six-Day War, a war that was started by the Arab nations and which Israel was not meant to win any more than Donald Trump was meant to win the 2016 elections. But Israel did win the Six-Day War, and guess what? One of the things that happens when you lose a war is you generally lose territory. That's what happened to uh, 
Poland and Hungary, and that's what happened to countries in the Yalta that fell victim to the Yalta Conference after World War II. Uh, winners gain territories, losers lose territories. And this has always been understood for every country in the world, of course, except Israel, which after the 67 war launched by its enemies with the with every intention, with every stated intention of obliterating it and terminating its existence, uh, Israel captured territory. And the very first thing that the United Nations began talking about in the peace process was the return of captured territories. Like, what is going on there? But, of course, uh, we understand that Israel is uh, treated quite uniquely and quite differently from every other country in that uh, glorious community of nations uh, that bizarre relic and, and grotesque travesty uh, called the United Nations. But uh, at any rate, the, uh, the, the, the truth is that um, Gaza was captured, was part of Israel, was turned into uh, a, a little paradise. Um, it, was, it had a thriving tourist industry, it, it had an enormous agricultural and highly successful agricultural sector. Uh, it was a major supplier to Europe of flowers during the winter uh, through a, an ingenious, huge uh, installation of hothouses, glasshouses uh, built by the Israelis. At any rate, uh, it was decreed in 2004 uh, that Israel was going to return Gaza for a variety of, of reasons, but uh, bottom line, it just allowed Hamas to gain control and uh, it provided them with an advance base uh, from which they were able to bombard uh, Israeli towns with their uh, artillery and rockets. It's It's been a disaster. At any rate, uh, like any country, Israel has the right to defend its borders. And uh, although the newscasts of the day spoke about uh, 50 Gazan civilians mowed down in a murderous massacre by the Israeli defense forces, uh, you get the impression that there were a bunch of Gazans who were gathering peacefully in the local village square to demonstrate and engage in legitimate protest of the Israeli, what, occupation? I mean, they gave it back. The fact that Israel uh, keeps control of Gaza's borders. Hey, folks, if you don't like that, guess what? You've got about 10 miles of border with Egypt, why didn't you just go to Egypt and uh, and get them to open the border? Well, guess what? Egypt doesn't want an open border with Gaza any more than Israel does. Now, I wonder why that could possibly be. But at any rate, uh, moving right on, uh, this, the implication is that they're just having a peaceful protest and uh, they get mowed down by Israeli bullets. Well, not exactly right. Uh, they were cutting the border fence and pouring through in a stated attempt to reach some of the neighboring towns. And Israel is a small place, so there are 
um, civilian populations within very close reach of the Gaza border, which is one of the reasons that the Israeli Defense Force keeps such a tight grip on that border. Basically, they were warned again and again and again with leaflets, with broadcasts, with loudspeakers, do not come through the border. This is an international border. There are, there's more than one border. There's a no man's land in between. Uh, they won't shoot till they get through the first border, through the second, through the no man's land. But if you keep on coming after that, you will be stopped. Well, they went ahead. And um, anyway, it's now been uh, it's it's now been clear, made clear that the 50 people who were shot by the Israelis were actually members of the Hamas terrorist group. They were not exactly choir boys out for a local church picnic. Anyways, uh, all of this, by the way, is just background for what I really wanted to tell you, which is uh, I want to talk about a contrast between three small Mediterranean uh, territories, three small Mediterranean countries, uh, two of whom couldn't be more different from the third. I want to take a look at Malta, Gibraltar, and Gaza, all of them on the Mediterranean and all of them somewhat isolated. Gibraltar with a somewhat tense border with Spain, Malta is an island, and Gaza with a border with uh, fellow Arabs in Egypt and a border with Israelis. And um, the difference between Malta and Gibraltar, which are both countries in which you may well choose to spend a very enjoyable few days vacation, and Gaza, in which, uh, let's put it this way, I think you'd rather go for a hike down a Slovakian sheep trail than take a walk anywhere at all in Gaza. Why? What is the possible difference between these places? I think it's worth a look in spite of the fact that the conclusion is decidedly politically incorrect. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, as you well know already. And the resource I want to draw to your attention, apropos of the subject of today's show, which is the holiday on which God conveyed his message to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, the product, the resource is called Ten Commandments, and uh, it's a one-hour audio program available for instant download at a wonderful price. If uh, you've never yet found a way to memorize the Ten Commandments, well, I will teach you an unforgettably easy way to always know the Ten Commandments, and I will also answer the question of uh, how can you have these Ten Commandments, which ostensibly are these like these important principles, but they leave out some really critical things, and they seem to include doubling up. I mean, isn't it enough to tell me that I should not steal, right, in Commandment 8? Isn't it enough to tell me I shouldn't steal? Why do you also have to tell me in number 10 that I shouldn't even want your stuff? As long as I'm not taking your stuff, why is it such a crucial thing that I have to be commanded not to even covet it? Uh, all extremely mysterious, but all resolved to your entire satisfaction in uh, 
The Ten Commandments audio program at rabbidaniellappin.com. And also, if you uh, have the technical expertise that you might be willing to help us with here uh, with respect to um, uh, the show and uh, bringing telephone callers into the show, well, by all means, please do let us know. We'd love that. Uh, all, at, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. A uh, quick break, and then you know that your rabbi will return. We're back, everybody, and uh, I welcome you back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi, that would be me, reminds you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend on those things that never change. And uh, one of the things that never changes is that the extent to which a society succeeds has to do more with its culture than with anything else. It's not external factors, it's internal factors. And this is true for populations in the United Kingdom or in the United States as it is for entire countries. Right? If, uh, if you want to know why Jews are disproportionately good with money, whether you're talking about the Jewish population of Israel, where five million people vastly exceed the economic productivity of the hundred million people who live in the four contiguous countries, Egypt, Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, or whether you're wondering why the Jewish population of Kansas City, small as it may be, uh, does disproportionately better than the non-Jewish population. If you're doing all of those studies, then don't look for external reasons, okay? Don't say, well, it's because uh, people are good to them. People send them stuff. People like that. It's not external. The reason, if you want to know why it is that Jewish populations disproportionately outperform uh, their neighbors financially, then what you want to do is you want to read my book, Business Secrets from the Bible. And when you've read that, you want to read Thou Shalt Prosper, The Ten Commandments for Making Money, because those books focus on identifying the cultural characteristics that produce financial wealth and abundance, and uh, how to make those available, how you, no matter what your background is, how you can utilize those principles. And so you don't look for external reasons, you look for internal cultural reasons for both success and failure. Uh, generally speaking, generally speaking, uh, these things are not due to external reasons. And so why is it that Malta and Gibraltar are two relatively isolated Mediterranean countries that are thriving? They're doing magnificently well. They're places you'd like to visit. Whereas Gaza, another Mediterranean principality, is it's an absolute basket case. What is the reason? Is it those pesky Israelis who are making it impossible for the folks in Gaza to do an honest day's work? 
Is it the pesky Israelis who are turning Gaza into such a hellhole that no tourists want to come? Really? Is that what's going on? Maybe we should take a look and see a more detailed comparison. Now, a lot of people say, well, the problem with Gaza is it's an overcrowded little hellhole. There's too many people in a tightly controlled small area. So let's just take a good look at the, uh, at the population density characteristics, shall we? Um, Malta has a population of about a half a million people in about uh, 130 square miles. That gives us uh, a population density of about 3,500 people per square mile. Uh, Gibraltar is only two and a half square miles with a population of about 35,000 people. That gives us a population density of 12,000 people per square mile. Where does Gaza fit in, right? Wouldn't you think, based on what you hear, that if Malta is 3,500, three and a half thousand people a square mile, and Gibraltar is 12,000 people a square mile, wouldn't you think that... Uh, uh, Gibraltar, uh, excuse me, that Gaza must be, oh, uh, uh, 50,000 people a square mile, right? No, actually wrong. Gaza is about the same area as Malta. It's uh, actually 140 square miles. Malta is about 130 square miles. And uh, Gaza has uh, three times the population of Malta. Malta is about half a million Gaza is about one and a half million. So if you concluded that uh, Gaza has approximately three times the population density of Malta, you'd be right, right? Malta is about uh, a little over 3,000 3, people a square mile. Gaza is 13,000 people a square mile. Oh, see, I told you. I told you that Malta is an, excuse me, that Gaza is an overcrowded hellhole. Can you believe it? They squeezed 13,000 people into every square mile. No wonder it's such a dreadful place. Well, why don't we look at some of the places in the world that have much higher population densities than Gaza? Uh, one of them is a place that you might have visited if you visited China, and if you have any uh, if you take pleasure in gaming, which is the polite word for gambling, then you would have visited Macau, which is a smooth-running, perfectly pleasant place. Even if you're not a gambler, you still might want to visit Macau for the same reason that if you're not a gambler, you might still want to visit Las Vegas, which is it's uh, uh, very nice hotels, very economical hotels compared to uh, hotels in other areas. Uh, resort-type hotels, economically priced, and uh, shows and entertainment, right? A lot of people go to Vegas who don't intend to gamble at all. Well, you could go to Macau, far higher population density than Gaza, and it works fine. Monaco, much higher population density than Gaza, seems to work okay. Well, that's different. There are rich folks there. Well, yes, but that's what we're talking about. That's precisely the point. Why are they rich there and poor in Gaza? Why in Monaco does everything work and the streets are clean, whereas Gaza is a filthy hellhole? 
Why? That's the whole point. That's what we're discussing. You want to visit another place that's got a far higher population density than Gaza? They're much more crowded in Singapore. They're much more crowded in Hong Kong. That's right. That's right. They are very crowded there. And how about Gibraltar? About the same level of crowding as Gaza. So you see, uh, to say that the reason that Gibraltar and Malta work, but Gaza doesn't, is because Gaza's too overcrowded, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, if you feel that overcrowding is the real problem, then maybe you'd like to go and spend a few months um, in some of the less crowded places in the world. And if you decide that crowding is what makes a place horrible, then I'm sure you'd love to go and spend time in Namibia. That would be what used to be called Southwest Africa. How about Mongolia? Pretty uncrowded there. I've picked the about the five or six least crowded places in the world. Falkland Islands, right? There's not a huge tourist trade going out to the Falkland Islands. There's not a lot of business going on there. Uh, all of these places have terribly poor economies. Uh, Niger, right? A country in Africa, very poorly populated. You think it's this terrific, wonderful, productive place? Not at all. Switzerland is much more crowded than Niger, and it's doing far better. How about Somalia? There's a really uncrowded place, very low population density in Somalia. Uh, when I last checked, not a lot of people booking vacations in Somalia, right? Because, my friends, it has nothing to do with population density. Population density in general is a good thing, not a bad thing. Let's have a look at the um, gross domestic product in Malta, about 11 billion. Gibraltar, uh, two and a half billion. How about when we break it down to per capita? In other words, on average, uh, what is the economic productivity? of each citizen on average throughout the place. Some will be more, some will be less. But on average, uh, Malta, 30,000 a year. Gibraltar, 92,000 a year. How about Gaza? Right, 6,000 a year. Malta, 30,000 a year per inhabitant. Gaza, 6,000 a year. What's going on there? The total... Uh, GDP for Gaza is about uh, $6 billion, something like that. Uh, what is going on there? Well, it's very simple. Uh, for one thing, of the roughly $6 billion, approximately $6 billion GDP, the reason it's a tough figure to nail down is because more than half of it is gifts. It's foreign aid. It's money poured in by uh, Asian countries, uh, Arab countries, and America, by the way, huge sums of money poured into Gaza. And it somehow fails to turn it into a paradise. As a matter of fact, uh, for, I'm sure, very good reasons, as soon as Israel handed over Gaza to the uh, Palestinians, they immediately destroyed all the hothouses. Israel handed over the entire agricultural industry intact, and the Gazans destroyed it, literally obliterated in a frenzied orgy of destruction. 
there are pictures available of what of what this place looked like when uh, the Arabs took over in the in the six or seven days following it. I mean, they destroyed acres of glass houses. They destroyed irrigation systems. For what end? Well, because they were built by those hateful Israelis who handed them over intact for no financial consideration, just in the hope that their Arab neighbors might conceivably decide to spend their time making money instead of devising new ways to kill Jews. So um, the difference between Gibraltar and Malta on the one hand and Gaza on the other hand, well, you're right, foreign aid is really an important part of it. Uh, My friends, what foreign aid does is remove people from reality. In the same way that, if you like, call it foreign aid, uh, turns America's inner cities into Gaza-like wastelands, yeah, it's foreign aid, otherwise known as welfare. Yeah, it does, because unearned money destroys people. Earned money fills people with optimism and hope and gratitude and eagerness. There's a very big difference. This is one of the reasons that it is close to impossible to find lottery winners who five years later are better off than they were before they won the lottery in the first place. There have been books written on this. There have been studies. It is almost impossible to find anybody who received a huge payout of tens of millions of dollars overnight and to have their lives vastly improved. Uh, My friends, this is a principle of ancient Jewish wisdom. It has been proven in the real world again and again as if it needed proof. Uh, It's a biblically founded a simple truth, and that is that earned money, money we make, uplifts us. Money we're given corrodes our souls. It's destructive. And so in the same way that unearned money has destroyed so many of America's cities, in the same way, unearned money, nobody gives money to Malta, nobody gives money to Gibraltar, they make it and they thrive. But giving money to uh, to Gaza, a ghastly, stupid idea that is uh, being perpetrated, it's destructive. If anything, the Gazans should uh, protest the United Nations, the United Nations programs. They should demonstrate, because it's those programs pumping money into Gaza Uh, That has caused the disruption, the dislocation, the chaos. I won't for now go into the details of how the money is used to finance terror, how the money is kept by the uh, Hamas authority and then doled out. Nobody in Gaza thanks Japan for the money they give. Stupid Japan, what are they doing that for? Nobody is thanking America for the money they give to Gaza. Stupid America. Uh, they're not. They're thanking Hamas because, as far as everybody in in uh, Gaza knows, when Hamas pays out the uh, family of dead terrorists, as they're now going to do for the families of the fifty people that were shot when they crossed the border into Israel, uh, they thank Hamas. 
Those families don't thank Japan or the European Union or America who provided the money in the first place. Stupid, stupid countries um, encouraged in their folly by the United Nations. Okay, uh, we pause on that, and when we come back, uh, why is it that if you take a look at the four mentions in the five books of Moses of the holiday of Pentecost or Shavuot, not one of them actually mentions that it is the day on which the good Lord conveyed his message to mankind through Moses at Mount Sinai. How come that's not even mentioned? Well, we'll explain that along with a whole lot else coming right back. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and thank you for listening. Thank you for being there. And as always, I thank the many of you who have obviously been helping out and uh, improving my life by expanding the reach of this show. Uh, I don't always know exactly how you do it, whether you send links, whether it's on iTunes or SoundCloud or on LibSync or wherever you do it, whether you send uh, links to friends that you uh, believe would enjoy it as you do or would find value in it or whether you tell people about it. I have no idea how you're actually doing it. But uh, you're obviously, many of you are doing it, and I appreciate it very much indeed. Now, uh, we were comparing Gaza with Malta and Gibraltar, a dysfunctional, hopeless basket case of a place, Gaza, with two thriving places, uh, Gibraltar and Malta. Now, uh, we've clarified already that this has absolutely nothing to do with being crowded. Well, does it have to do with being isolated? Well, hard to see why, because Gaza has a coastline, it has harbors, and um, you might say, well, there's an Israeli naval blockade, only of weapons, only of military cargoes. Other than that, whatever they want. Israel supplies them with electricity. Israel supplies them with water, uh, getting very little in return, by the way. But they do it nonetheless. Uh, nobody supplies Gibraltar. Nobody supplies Malta. So uh, the the notion that the isolation is a factor, and in any event, after all, don't forget, Gaza has at, it's about a 10-mile border with Egypt, and they should just be able to drive. I mean, there should be a non-stop uh, convoy of trucks. You know how trucks travel between the state of Washington and Alaska? Uh, oil travels. I mean, you know that Alaska is a sort of isolated state of the United States. It's not connected to the lower 49 or 48. And yet uh, there are convoys of trucks that drive between uh, the state of Washington and Alaska all the time. So you'd have thought that there'd be convoys of trucks between Gaza City and Port Said or Alexandria or Cairo. All they've got to do is drive down the Gaza Strip. You, you know, you're not talking more than a few miles. They can uh, pick anywhere along the 10-mile border to cross into Egypt. Oh, 
Egypt. Their Arab Muslim brothers don't want them to. Oh, so this no longer is an issue between Israel and Gaza. It's the Gazans themselves have developed such a toxic culture that their own brothers want nothing to do with them. Weird. But you see, it's considered to be politically incorrect to examine cultures because it's called blaming the victim. Have you heard of that? You may not blame the victim. That is as if to imply that a victim is never complicit in his own misfortune. Um, you know, there used to be a, a heavyweight boxing champion before my time, uh, Gene Tunney was his name. But uh, what always intrigued me is that he used to complain that when he was out for a night on the town, people used to pick fights with him. And he says he was always, it, it was a lose-lose situation for him. If he ignored these provocateurs, then he said, you know, he felt like a coward. He was just letting people insult him. Uh, if he responded and knocked the guy out, he was a bully. So there was no win. But yes, what happens if you're stupid enough to pick a fight with uh, Mike Tyson and you do get knocked out? Are you automatically the pure, virtuous, good victim who got bullied by the evil Mike Tyson or Gene Tunney or anybody else? No, sometimes people do really stupid things and they are the chief agent of their own destructions. Now, when we speak about examining a culture, it's crucially important, right? Why is it that almost any small predominantly Christian town in the South, if you like, is a more pleasant place in which to live than Manhattan or Chicago? Why? Because the culture is different. That's right. It's all a case of culture. And what is culture? Culture is religion and values, my friend. There is very little escape from that unpopular conclusion. T.S. Eliot um, was the one who taught me. He was a problematic guy. I, didn't, I don't much care for most of what he wrote, but I do acknowledge a debt to him in that he was the one who taught me that uh, the word culture is just a derivation from the old word cult. And as I've told you before, when we use the word cult, we tend to think of um, uh, of uh, a, uh, a, a few hundred dislocated, unhappy people in the jungle in Guyana, relocated from San Francisco, who drank Kool-Aid and all died. Jim Jones was the cult leader, and there are many, many other such stories of cults. That's right. But the uh, that's a modern usage. The original word cult uh, meant religion. So they often speak of the early cult of Christianity. <laughs> they don't mean that there was some charismatic leader who got people to dissociate from their families and do dangerous things. No, uh, just another word for religion. So culture is the kind of environment that is generated and nurtured by a particular religious outlook. Yes, my friends, there is a vast difference between the groups of people and the societies that are generated and nourished by Christianity than 
those that are generated and nourished by Islam. Different religions, different cults, if you like, different cultures. Now, uh, we're looking at the difference between Malta and Gibraltar on the one hand and Gaza on the other. It's nothing to do with population size or density. We've covered that. It's nothing to do with being disconnected because Malta is an island with no road connection anywhere. And Gibraltar has a very unhappy border with Spain where there's not a lot of interaction. Uh, so talking about being isolated, Gaza is much less isolated than either Malta or uh, Gibraltar is. And yet both those countries have vastly larger GDPs than Gaza does. And half of Gaza's GDP is foreign aid. Well, foreign aid is obviously a huge cause of Gaza's problems. There's no question about it. If you've ever wondered why it is that uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, uh, countries that I've had the pleasure of visiting, are vastly more functional than Gaza, or the uh, West Bank is, the Palestinian Authority. Why? You might say, well, it's because of money. <laughs> yeah, but that's the whole point. The question is why? How come? How come they're not? Well, isn't the culture the same? Dubai and Qatar and Abu Dhabi and Dubai are also Muslim. That's true. But they are very focused on earning money. My friends, making money is one of the best things you can be doing because you're not up to mischief while you're making money. Samuel Johnson, the British diarist, said it best, and that he seldom is a man more innocently engaged than when trying to increase his own fortune. Honestly, I would much rather you were trying to start a new business than that you were trying to go into politics and become another person to try and run my life or to become a government bureaucrat, please do not go into public service. I hate that euphemism. I know what you really are trying to do when you're going to public service. You're trying to gain power over my life, as well as over my wallet. Forget it. I'm not interested. But if you're trying to start a new business, the only way you get my money is by giving me something I value more than the price you put on your goods or services. I love that. And so, yes, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, terrific places. I must tell you, they're both nice places for a vacation. Uh, the, the first time uh, Susan and I went there, uh, we were a, a little apprehensive, particularly since, uh, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm noticeably Jewish, especially if I'm wearing my uh, skull cap, my yarmulke, my kippah. Um, and uh, and so we, we flew into one of those countries. I don't remember which one it was for this particular story. But, but I mean, we'd, we flew in on an Arab airline, Etihad Airlines. And I'd, uh, we'd been surprised with delicious kosher meals. So there was no secret at all as to our identity. And we then went through passport control to enter the country, and our passports have Israeli stamps in them. So there's really no secret, and uh, uh, we're just we're standing in line there waiting for the passport guy to be free. And Susan said to me, um, "You know, if we do get arrested and uh, and put 
<laughs> into some kind of long-term detention here. Uh, we're going to look pretty stupid. You know, people are going to say, yes, you decided to go and visit Abu Dhabi or Dubai or Qatar. What were you thinking? Well, yeah, admittedly, but the truth is we had a fine time. Um, I uh, I spent four or five days in Qatar, in Doha. Very pleasant. No problem at all. What's the difference? The difference is they are busy making money. The, Pal the West Bank and Gaza are receiving welfare from the nations of the world. Stupid nations causing precisely the result that ancient Jewish wisdom would have predicted and does predict. In the same way, by the way, you can obviously learn lessons with respect to raising your own children in terms of what you give and what you let them earn, right? So, so we are reduced to um, having no fallback, no alternative, but to conclude that the reason Gaza is a huge, colossal, cat catastrophic, cataclysmic failure and uh, very, very similar Mediterranean places like Gibraltar and Malta are fantastic places. We are forced to arrive at the conclusion that it is largely foreign aid, yes, but it's also a matter of culture. Folks, Gibraltar and Malta have been Christian countries for a very long time, a very long time. And that makes a huge difference because Judeo-Christian, biblically-based culture does produce more successful societies than Islam does. It simply is a reality. And it's hard to escape, particularly when you look at a situation like Gaza. Okay, uh, the website is rabbidaniellappin.com or youneedarabbi.com. That works as well. And the resource you're looking at is an audio program you can download very economically this week, special price for listeners of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, it is called The Ten Commandments. And uh, you will enjoy it. It will also uh, expose you to the explanation of why it is that throughout the five books of Moses, listen to this, this is weird. It is called the Ten Commandments only four times. You know how many times it's referred to as the two tablets? More than 30 times. What? We always call it the Ten Commandments. Yeah, I guess we're mistaken because the quality of tenness that it has, the aspect of ten, appears not to be nearly as important as why God decided to put the, two t the Ten Commandments on two tablets, right? Moses should have protested, but all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Also a good place to reach us and send us questions, send us comments, and, uh, and perhaps even uh, advice or help. All of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. A uh, quick break. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you in a moment. Okay, you happy warriors. Let's dive right into it. The, the basic uh, topic of uh, today's show, as you can tell, um, has been the role that the Bible plays in the creation of safe, 
durable, tranquil, prosperous societies. That's right. And uh, it's for that reason that President Abraham Lincoln actually referred to the Bible as, and I, I quote him, the best gift God has given to man, but for it we could not know right from wrong. And uh, the, the truth is that anybody, I mean, whether you are religious or atheistic, whether you're uh, Jew or Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, whatever you are, you, regardless of how you feel about the Bible, if you're an honest, uh, intellectually open person, you would have to admit that no book in the history of the world has ever been a more powerful creative force. Uh, you can look at John Winthrop on the Mayflower. You can look at William Bradford, the uh, second governor of the Plymouth Colony. You can look at Adams or Washington or even Ronald Reagan. America's founding and its destiny drew direction and guidance from Scripture. And, um, and not only in America, but even elsewhere around the world. In China, there are huge pockets of Christian resurgence more evangelical Christians in China than members of the Communist Party. That's right. In Africa, you superimpose a map of economic productivity along over a map of Christian resurgence and their superimposition. They're the same in Africa. Uh, even in Islamic uh, regimes, people yearning for freedom and a more godly vision to life recognize their ability to hitch themselves to the biblical covenant of Abraham through Christianity. Um, you cannot possibly overestimate the Bible's influence on very significant British figures. And I, I'm speaking of them because they're the people upon whom the founders and the early years of American history these are the people they turn to for guidance in shaping a declaration of independence, in sculpting a constitution. People, Britishers like John Selden. A lot of Selden's writings was biblical. Uh, Thomas Hobbes, the Leviathan, biblical concept. Uh, again, probably a third of his material is biblical. John Locke, uh, the treatises of John Locke, in American law schools, they only teach the ones that he doesn't refer to the Bible in. But where he refers to the Bible, many, uh, many American law schools don't even teach. Uh, look, the um, John Locke and uh, Hobbes and Selden all agreed that the people of Israel had a republic that was very nearly perfect from the time of the Exodus until at least the coronation of King Saul. And the reason was because of its transcendent origin. It was an exemplary state of law, and it was a society dedicated to social justice and republican liberty. I'm speaking about ancient Israel, but I could just as well be speaking about modern-day America, at least up until 1960, wouldn't you agree? Um. Certainly the most important philosophical influence on the American independence movement was John Locke. And, um, and you, cannot, you cannot overestimate 
the influence the Bible played in the thinking and in the writing of John Locke. There was a terrific Irish historian in the uh, in the uh, late 1800s. His name was John uh, William Lecky, and he's got a phrase that I just love. He he actually wrote, and again here it is, Hebraic mortar cemented the foundations of American democracy. Hebraic mortar cemented the foundations of American democracy. That's right. I think I think that's exactly true. And um and so it is. You know, you can visit Europe and uh, you can visit I mean half the tourist destinations in France in Paris um are, are churches with stained glass depictions of biblical scenes. Um the the shape of British literature was shaped more by the Bible than by any other book, even more than all the writings of William Shakespeare. Um, William Blake, he was an English poet who who wrote about the New Jerusalem, the dark satanic mills, etc., famous poet, kind of interesting, interesting poems. I've sort of come to, to like them more than I used to. Um, he he called the Old and New Testaments the great codes of art. Um, so um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, in his second inaugural address, remember what he said? With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right. Um, Lincoln's speech, it sounds like he was writing a supplement to the Bible. 14 references to God in that in that speech four direct quotations from scripture it's it's unbelievable so um uh, ronald reagan called america a great a, sh- a great shining city on a hill and and that was 350 years after john winthrop um who uh, who said uh, that here in America we're going to build a new community that would be as a city upon a hill. And he was quoting a New Testament phrase. I'm not absolutely familiar with it at all, but that phrase, a city upon a hill, or a city set on a hill, is one that I'm familiar with. And, uh, and of course, I'm familiar with its origin, where it originally uh, comes from before it shows up in Matthew. It shows up in Isaiah and Proverbs, uh, and you know it you cannot be an educated person without knowing the Bible. Well, I should perhaps correct that because today in America, you can graduate an American geek that would mean a government indoctrination camp uh, places formerly known as public schools. You can graduate a an American university knowing absolutely nothing about the Bible. You can literally end up completely illiterate. That is true. But uh, one thing is for sure, and that is to, uh, to, to think that you actually can be tied into culture and understand the history of Western civilization, the history of the English-speaking people, without knowing the Bible and the role it played without understanding 
the role played by the Bible in the Protestant Reformation in the early 16th century, uh, the translation of the Bible by Tyndale, the later translation of the Bible in, in 1611, the King James Version. If we don't realize how the Reformation was driven by people who wanted to read the Word of God themselves in the Bible rather than have it told to them, how can you possibly understand what America is, what America was intended to be? So, again, regardless of your own position of religiosity, whether you are a believer, whether you're not a believer, whether you love the Bible or you despise it, bottom line is the worst thing of all is to be ignorant about it. It's really, really incredible. Because the truth is, you, if you, even if you're just interested in American history, you cannot study American history without studying the emergence of Puritanism in, in England in the 1500s. That was, it revolved, it was a movement that totally revolved around the Bible. And that's what, that's what resulted in modern Britain and, uh, and then finally America. Now, of course, I know that to call somebody a Puritan these days is an insult, right? Um, it suggests, well, you know what Puritan suggests. But um, again, this is uh, secular revisionism. The fact is the, the Puritans are why there is an America today. Look, the, these are, are things that uh, we could talk about uh, again and again and again. We could, just, we, we could do more than an entire show on the topic. But obviously, that is not what we're doing and not where we're going. But the important thing is to see that the connection between the prosperity and the tranquility that biblically-based cultures have built is not an accident. It's not an accident that the Western world is a world to which the rest of the world aspires. Uh, the the fact is that both bathrooms, in other words, physical cleanliness and what to do about human waste, I covered that last week, both bathrooms and banking in, uh, in Boston and in Birmingham do not look the way banks and bathrooms used to look in Bangkok and Bombay and Beijing before they turned to the West for inspiration? No. They are the ones that abandoned their cultural approach to money and human waste and adopted the Western model. So this holiday that uh, I, along with many others, will be celebrating this Saturday night, and I will be uh, studying and teaching Bible all night till sunrise on Sunday morning, uh, the 20th. Uh, the, 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 this is discussed four places in the five books of Moses. It's discussed in Exodus 23, Exodus 34, uh, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 16, and here's the interesting thing. In none of those places does it talk about, oh, and this is the day on which God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. No, it speaks about the results of that. Each of those four instances referencing the holiday speak about prosperity. They speak about the harvest. 
They speak about uh, uh, tranquility. They speak about the calendar. They speak about uh, first fruits. All of these things flowing from the tranquility that the Bible brings. Look, in order to make money, right? How do, how do you make money? You think the government just prints it? Is that what you really think? Of course not. The role of government is only to promote tranquility and freedom so that people can go ahead and make money. And then the government's job is confined to minting only sufficient currency to precisely match the amount of creativity that's been going on within the economy. If the government miscalculates, which is easy to do, or sometimes will miscalculate deliberately because one of the ways politicians get to spend your money is by inflating the currency, in other words, by printing it. So when governments print too much currency, they cause inflation. When they are too slow, they cause deflation, which is a problem of a different kind. Uh, but the um, the money itself is actually made when one human being does something for another human being, either does a transaction exchanging goods and services for money or provides something. That's all that's going on. And in that uh, process with that transaction, both parties consider themselves wealthier than they were before. Otherwise, they wouldn't have done the transaction. Right? The only transactions by force are a holdup, an armed robbery, or the IRS, when the government takes your money. Those are the only forced transactions. The private sector, greedy corporations, if you listen to the Bernie Sanders of the world, the only way they get your money is when you voluntarily decide to give it to them in exchange for what they're giving for you or doing for you. It's a very different story entirely. And so what the Bible does in creating a culture is, number one, uh, creates a culture of mutual trust because you cannot possibly trade with people whom you don't trust. You also can't trade and won't trade with people you don't like. And so the Bible specializes in, being li in learning the, the techniques of being likable and being trustworthy. Not surprisingly, biblical cultures end up creating wealth, obviously. I'm certainly uh, compressing books like my book, Thou Shall Prosper, or like my book, Business Secrets from the Bible, or like uh, Prosperity Power, Connect for Success, which explains, by the way, why biblical verses start with the word and, completely contrary to what your teachers told you, or why the book of Ruth has more ands in it than any other book in the Bible, and it's read on the holiday of Shavuot or Pentecost. All of this is uh, a part of the secrets of why prosperity is tied to the Bible. But um, a lot of that is available in an audio program called uh, The Ten Commandments, and you'll find that on our website. If you are interested in the, uh, the two-hour audio program called Prosperity Power, read about it, by the way. Just go to the website and read about it. You'll then determine if that is something that could bring added value to you and your family and to your friends. 
Uh, all of that at rabbidaniellappin.com. Also a place to communicate with us. Thank you for your help in disseminating the podcast, making it as popular as it's getting. I appreciate that very much. And um, if any of you do have information or an ability to help on uh, some of the technical aspects of the show, by all means, please be in touch with us at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com. Well, folks, until next week, that's it. For those of you celebrating Shavuot or Pentecost, have a good one. And if not, have a great week, a week of good health and prosperity. Until next week, I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.